Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Welcome, Lake Point family, and uh, hey, if you got your Bibles, head over to Matthew chapter 10, and then put your finger in 2 Corinthians 5. So Matthew 10, finger goes in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to warn you right now, this sermon is like a mullet. Business up front, party in the back. Okay, so just know that. What's going to happen is the first half of this message, you're going to be like, man, this is super intense. And then back half, we're just going to worship, and it's, it's going to be awesome, okay? So here's what's going on. I just want to welcome you, um, if you're, especially if you're new to Lake Point. Let me just say, you have picked, like, the best week ever um, to make your first week for two reasons. One, um, this is the largest baptism weekend in Lake Point history. And by the way, oh, not yet, not yet, not yet. And by the way, here, here in about 10 seconds is your spot. Uh, at the, by the end of this service, across all our campuses, across all the services, we will have baptized over 220 brand new believers in Christ. That's right, man. We are really excited about that. And uh, so, man, um, you picked a good week just to get a see uh, what's going on in life of the church. But then number two, we are in week two of a series that we're just calling 60 Seconds After You Die. 60 Seconds After You Die. We ask the question, what is it that happens right after you die? And here's why this is really important. I did some meticulous, hard-fought statistical research leading up to this message series. And here's what I found. I found that the death rate in the DFW area, it hovers right at 100%. It's right there all the time. And so what we're doing during this series is, kind of our mentality is only a fool goes through life unprepared for what's inevitable. And so what we wanna do during this series is look at, man, what, what is it that happens? You breathe your last, what happens in those next, next 60 seconds? So last week, we looked at the reality that all of us will stand before God in judgment. There's two questions he's gonna ask. Go back, watch that message if you missed it. Next week, we're really excited about it. We're looking at the glories of heaven, what's coming. This week, like I said, a little more intense, we're looking at the reality of hell. The reality of hell. Now, here's what I know. As soon as I say that, there's a lot of people that are like, ah, <laughs> really weird, man, kind of intense. Um, and honestly, what happens a lot of times is we, as Christians, we don't know how to talk about what the Bible says about the reality of hell and the possibility that people go there um, without being misunderstood or coming across poorly or like, man, that was not a great interaction. Uh, one of my favorite um, little stories is a story of a, a like a, a fifth grader that was a Christian fifth grader that was in um, the class of a skeptical, unbelieving English professor. And the uh, English teacher assigned all the students um, a, a book report on their favorite book, and that little Christian fifth grader had just finished reading the book of Jonah. And so he chose uh, to do his book report on the book of Jonah, and the, uh, the teacher, as soon as he heard about it, kind of with a sneer, called the student up to his desk, and he said, son, you know that the story of Jonah, that's not real, right? 
And the student just fired right back with faith and courage. Well, of course it is. It's in the Bible. And again, with kind of a sneer on his face, the teacher just said, well, if it was real, how do you explain how Jonah lived in the belly of a fish underwater for three days? And the student thought for a second and finally just said, you know, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. To which the teacher responded, you know, again, sneer on his face, well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? To which the student fired right back, then you can ask him. (laughs) And see, that's what I mean, is that we, a lot of times, we just don't know how to talk about these things without the interaction honestly being poor, condescending, being misunderstood. And very honestly, as a culture, we've become, as a culture, extremely uncomfortable with saying or talking about anything, even if it's true, something that might make somebody uncomfortable. We've become allergic, uncomfortable with making people uncomfortable. And as a result, what has happened is a lot of times we just don't talk about these realities. And so gradually over time, people just develop the the belief that the default is, oh, everybody must go to heaven because we never talk about the reality of what the Bible says about hell. Um, it was really interesting um, when uh, years ago, when I was uh, first became a student pastor, my papa, who was like my life hero, lived in the same town, watched NFL with him every Sunday, he suddenly passed away very unexpectedly, and I was really deeply affected by that. There was a sweet Sunday school teacher in our class that had all of her little students write me encouragement notes, and here was my favorite one from a theoretical little third grader. He said, dear Josh, I'm sorry your papa died, but look on the bright side, maybe he's in heaven. maybe, you know, but I at least appreciated the fact that he acknowledged the reality that it's not just a given that everybody goes to heaven. Now, here's what I know. As I get into these things, again, what I know is this may make some of you uncomfortable, especially if you're kind of new to church, you're like, ah, kind of kicking the tires in the faith, But, but listen, here's what I'm assuming. I'm assuming you don't want a pastor that's only gonna tell you things that make you comfortable. I'm assuming you want a pastor that's gonna tell you everything this book says. And so because of that, we just need to talk about these things with a frankness from the scripture. So listen, let's talk about it. And we don't have to like it. We do have to believe it because it's in the book. So let's get right at it. Um, Let me begin with just a, a very frank reality. The Bible simply teaches, let me start here, that hell is a real place. And guys, if the Bible talked about hell even one time, we would believe it because it's in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't talk about hell one time. The Bible talks about hell no less than 54 times. You know, a lot of times uh, people get this picture that the God of the Old Testament is this angry, just, wrathful God, and in the New Testament we have gentle Jesus, meek and mild, full of love. But what's interesting is Jesus is the one that talked about hell more than any other biblical author. And let me double down on that. Not only did Jesus talk about hell more than any other biblical author, get this, Jesus talked about the reality of hell more than every other biblical author combined. And he didn't do that in spite of the fact that he was so loving. He did that because of the fact that he was so loving. Because as you'll see in about five minutes in this message, you will never fully understand the love of God until you deeply understand the reality of the justice and the wrath of God. It's the backdrop by which we see and understand the fullness of God's love for us. Second Peter chapter two teaches that God did not prepare hell for you. He didn't create hell for you. He created hell as a place for Satan and his angels to put them away from you to keep them from harming you. That's why God initially created hell. 
Let me give you one example of a time when Jesus talked about hell in just a very straightforward way. He did so in Matthew 10, 28, among many, many, many other times. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said this. He said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus was just very straightforward because he loves us. Hell is a real place, and it's possible for you, some of you, possible for you to go there. When Jesus talked about hell, he used a Greek word uh, that uh, the, a Greek word that was actually referring to a geographic place outside of the city of Jerusalem. He used the word Gehenna. As I mentioned, um, that was a, a geographic valley, a valley of Gehenna, right outside of the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. I actually stood in that valley earlier this year, and it was a place that had been condemned, uh, kind of uh, deemed unfit for use by the Jewish people when they established the city of Israel. The reason was for the centuries leading up to the establishment of the city of Israel, that valley had been a place where children had been murdered. It was a place where child sacrifice had taken place to a false demon god named Moloch, and children, vile, disgusting, condemnable child sacrifice had taken place there for so long that the Jewish people just deemed that valley as a condemned place, unfit for use, not to be built on, not to be enjoyed, not to be used. And so it was a very steep valley right outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. So steep was that valley that the Jewish people, they could walk up to the walls of the city of Jerusalem and they would just toss, uh, it was, they would toss garbage or sewage, the carcasses of animal sacrifices or the bodies of executed criminals over the wall and it would fall down into the valley of Gehenna. And in order to combat, listen, both the disease and the stench of that valley, Fires were kept burning there day and night, 24 hours a day, 365 days per year. It was like an ancient trash incinerator, constantly burning. And Jesus, being the master teacher that he was, he pointed to that valley and he said, that's what hell is like. It's a place where God puts, where people go who are no longer within the chance of being redeemed, unfit for use, never to be redeemed and used again in a positive way. If that's not harrowing enough, here, let me give you some other language that the Bible uses to describe hell. The Bible uses language like darkness, torment, punishment, restlessness, second death, weeping and gnashing of teeth, damnation, burning sulfur. Now, let me just acknowledge something really quick. Um, here's what happened in the last like 30 to 50 years uh, for preachers. About 30 to 50 years, maybe two generations of preachers ago before me, preachers actually talked about hell a lot. They talked about hell a lot. Maybe even a little more than makes sense given how often the Bible teaches about it. But what happened is I think in my generation and down of preachers has probably swung the pendulum the other way. Where now, my generation and down of preachers, not all, but many of them, they just never, ever talk about what the Bible says about hell. And so what I know is for a lot of you guys, especially if you're newer to church, you may be going like, whoa, like, bro, like, calm down. Like, this is super intense. Because for a lot of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard someone talk 
about the reality of what the Bible says about hell. The first time, little, little side note here, the first time I ever preached on the reality of hell, I got a very interesting comment in the lobby that I didn't know how to take. I walked right out into the lobby and a guy about my age grabbed my hand and shook it and he said, thanks pastor, I never knew what hell was like until I listened to you preach. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'll never go to the lobby ever again after a message, never do that. But, but you may be hearing all this and, and if you've never heard this before, you may be going, man, Josh, why? Why does the Bible talk about this and why does it, Jesus talk about it so much? Why is that in there? When I was a, um, a junior in high school, I took uh, my first, it was my first and only, I took driver's ed my junior year. I didn't fail driver's ed and have to take it again just for the public record. But I took driver's ed junior year of high school. And on the first day of driver's ed, um, they didn't put us behind the wheel of a car. We didn't touch any driving instrumentation. What they did is they brought in a public safety official and they showed us both pictures and videos of bodies, sometimes gruesome pictures and videos of bodies that had been in violent car accidents. And I remember there was one guy in the class that raised his hand in the middle of the class and he said, hey, we just wanna drive. Like, why are you showing us all of this? And I remember the safety official explained, he said, we're trying to help you understand the danger you're in every time you get behind the wheel of a car so that you'll be careful to avoid it. Now guys, do you know why Jesus talks about the reality of hell so often? Here's why. It's as if Jesus and all of scripture is waving a caution flag about this reality so that nobody ever has to go there. Say, man, wake up, be aware that this is a reality. Now a couple objections. Um, again, maybe some Bible teachers, particularly in my generation and down, in the last few years what's happened is some people have said, well, maybe it's just temporary. Maybe some people go there for just a little while and then they're annihilated. Or maybe you go there and you're there just for a little while to sort of burn off or purge off some of the sins of this life, hence the name purgatory, which is not in the Bible. And you just go there for a little while and then you have a second chance for redemption. But again, I just wanna tell you what this book says, and that's simply not true. It's not true. Both the Old and the New Testament tell us that the reality of both heaven and hell are eternal realities. Uh, two examples, in the Old Testament, Daniel 12, two says, multitudes who sleep and the dust of the earth will awake. Watch the language, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now fast forward to the New Testament, and again, this is Jesus. Jesus full of love in his heart. Jesus said, then they will go away, some to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, did you notice that both the Old and the New Testament use the same word to describe the duration of both heaven and hell? It used the word eternal. Guys, if we take the Bible seriously, the only conclusion we can reach is that the duration of hell is the same as the duration of heaven. It's eternal. You know, another objection some people have done, again, primarily my generation and down lately, is they've looked at some of these, the, the fact that Jesus uses the word Gehenna or this language like outer darkness or burning sulfur, that sort of thing, and they go, man, well, yes, the Bible talks about hell, but it's just a metaphor. All those things, they're just metaphors. Hell isn't real. This is just a metaphorical place Jesus is sort of using to sort of warn people. And let me acknowledge something. Yes, you're right. The Bible is, I think, using metaphor, but guys, listen, that's bad news, not good news. Because all throughout the Bible, think about what a metaphor is. A metaphor is always a small reality or a small example that points to a greater reality. That's what a metaphor always is, a small example that points to a greater reality. 
What that means is that yes, the Bible uses some metaphorical language to talk about hell, but that ought to cause us to open our mouths in awe because that means that the reality of what hell is will be worse than the metaphors the Bible uses. This will admittedly be the most intense part of this entire sermon. But in uh, preparing for this message, I came across a, a portion of a sermon from an 18th century American theologian, a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a guy who was known for loving his congregation with just a bleeding heart. And as he studied what the Bible taught about hell, he wrote this to help his congregation understand it and internalize it. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. Imagine yourself cast into a fiery oven glowing with heat and imagine that your body was going to lie there for a quarter of an hour full of fire inside and out, feeling every fiber of it the whole time. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to drag on to you? If it were measured by an hourglass, how slowly would the time seem to go? Then, after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to think that you had another 14 minutes left? But what if you knew that you had to lie there enduring its torment for 24 hours? How much greater even if you knew that you had to endure it for a whole year? How much greater still if you knew that you had to endure it for a thousand years? What, might, what would happen to your heart if you knew that you must bear it forever and that there would be no end? That after millions and millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than before and that you should never, never be rescued, but your torment in hell will be immeasurably greater than this. How inexpressible and inconceivable would your soul sink in such a case? Now, if that isn't sobering enough, the most important question is, who goes there? Who goes to that place? Now, let me again, let's talk again to maybe particularly my generation and down. What I'm getting ready to say is super on PC, and I'm probably gonna take off a whole lot of people. But listen, here's what I'm not willing to do. I'm not willing to withhold telling you everything this book says. And when I die, 60 seconds after I die, I stand before God and I have to hear the words, not well done, unfaithful servant. And so I wanna be honest with you about what Jesus said because Jesus was very clear about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. In John 14, six, Jesus simply said this. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me, no one. Buddhism, no. Hinduism, no. Islam, no. Good people, no. Religious people, no. Social justice liberalism, no. God and country conservatism, no. Jesus, yes. Jesus, yes. Jesus, yes. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. And all that come to him will by no means be cast out by the Father forever. No one, no one, no one. Now you may hear all that and honestly something may rise up within you. You may go, man, Josh, that's so, I hate that. And you may be going, I wouldn't have done it that way. If I was God, I would never do that. I wouldn't have done it that way. 
You know, I've mentioned before that uh, my, dad, my dad was a preacher, and so I grew up like listening to a lot of preachers in the car with my dad because I'm cool like that. <laughs> and, uh, and there was an old Baptist preacher, a guy named J. Vernon McGee. And J. Vernon McGee, he had, this, he had a real funny voice. And one time on the radio, I heard J. Vernon McGee say this. He said, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And guys, this is the reality, is that God is sovereign, that God is in control of everything, and that these are the principles that God has given us, and they're gracious, loving principles that God has given us. Anybody who comes to Jesus, it is the most wide open door ever. Anybody that comes to Jesus will be accepted by God, but only those who come to Jesus will be accepted by God. Now, listen, you may hear all this about what the Bible teaches, and you may go, man, Josh, that's just not fair. What you're describing right here, that just doesn't sound fair. But guys, can we back up for a second and start to actually think with logical minds about what's fair? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What that means is that if everything that was fair happened, the first time the human race ever sinned, we would have been done forever under the judgment and wrath of God. If what was fair happened, the first time that we ever knowingly transgressed the laws of God in rebellion against him, you would have in that moment dropped right into the punishment of God, the eternal punishment of God's justice. That would, would be what would happen if what was fair always happened. And listen, here's what I think has happened collectively to the human, human race over these millennia, is that over the millennia, God has poured out so much grace and so much patience, and so much kindness. He is waiting, withholding the judgment that we deserve so that we have a chance to come to him through Jesus. We've gotten so much of grace, mercy, and kindness from God that we've begun to think that what we deserve is grace, mercy, and patience so that when we see an example of justice, we think, not fair, not fair. Uh, I can give an example of this. So uh, um, I've got two daughters, a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Both of them in the last three weeks just finished getting their tonsils and adenoids taken out, uh, so two surgeries back-to-back. And what we did was when one of them had the surgery, what that meant is for the next five days, she got all the ice cream and all the TV she wanted, and the other one didn't. And then when we switched the surgeries, then, then she got all the ice cream she wanted and all the TV she wanted and the other didn't. And so what happened was during that first surgery, there was a week where Felicity got all the ice cream she wanted and Eliana did not get that ice cream. And what Eliana said, what happened, you guys have had this happen, you give one of your kids something, you don't give the other one something, what's the other one always say? They say, not fair, not fair. Now I have never done this, but here's what I've wanted to do when one of my kids says, not fair. What I've wanted to do is say, oh, it's fairness that you want, huh? Okay, let's do fair. How about we divide the mortgage five ways? Oh, look, I've got three homeless kids. Oh, it's fairness that you wanted. Fair? How about this for fair? Whoever pays for the Xbox plays the Xbox. Oh, look, Dad got an Xbox all to himself. It's fairness that you wanted. Guys, listen, what I want to tell my kids sometimes is, listen, you are not living in this house by fairness. You are living in this house by grace and grace alone for a few years, and then you're leaving, and then you're leaving. That's how this works. Guys, when we understand the grace, mercy, and patience that God has shown us, we understand what's truly fair. What you will begin to realize is that what's amazing, what is amazing and ought to pull worship out of our hearts, 
What's amazing is not that anybody ends up in hell. What's amazing is that any sinner ever ends up in heaven. That's what's amazing. Now you may hear that, you may still go, Josh, it still just doesn't seem fair to me. You may be going, man, how is it fair for someone to get eternal punishment for temporary sins? That doesn't seem fair at all. Because actually, you already know this is fair. This is the operative principle by which our justice system already works. Think about it. The wickedness of an action is never determined by the act of the one who committed it. The wickedness of an action is always determined by the magnitude of the one that it's committed against. That's always how we determine wickedness. Here's my example. If I were to walk out into DFW tonight, and I were to kill a mosquito, a very small being, no one would care, nothing would happen to me. In fact, I would probably get thanked by somebody. Somebody would celebrate, okay? Now, let's do this example with a greater being. Let's say I walked into a neighborhood and I killed a cat. Uh, who am I kidding? They'd probably celebrate that too. <laughs> Just teasing, all right. Uh, so imagine I walked into a neighborhood and I killed a dog, okay? Well, actually, something very terrible could happen to me. I, I could be prosecuted for animal cruelty. I could be subject to fines or community service. Now, let's step it up just a little bit further. What if I walked into a store and I killed a person? I could go to jail for the rest of my entire life. Now, let me step it up even further. What if I attempted an assassination on the President of the United States or the Queen of England? Something worse than jail would happen to me instantly. Now, guys, watch this. We already understand this. A sin against a lesser being deserves a lesser punishment. A sin against a greater being deserves a greater punishment. A sin against an eternal and perfect God deserves, guess what? an eternal and perfect punishment. That's what fairness would dictate. Fairness would be all of those things. Now, you may hear all of that, everything that I've said, and you may still right now be going, Josh, I've still got tons of questions. I've got lots of questions that you're not answering. Can I just be really honest? Me too. Me too. But listen, guys, if God is the size of the Pacific Ocean and our minds are the size of a Coke can, there are some things that we should expect won't fit. Guys, there simply must come a moment where before the word of God, we shut our mouths and we bend our knees and we extend our hands into the air and we say, oh God, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways and your thoughts higher than my thoughts. We simply have to do that. Now, this brings me to the part that we've gotten through the business, let's get to the party. This brings me to the part of the message that I'm most eager to preach because you may hear all of that and if you're not a Christian, you're kind of kicking the tires on this thing, you may hear all of that and you may go, Josh, well if all that's true, then why doesn't God do something about it? Listen, he has. He has done something about it. Listen, this, the rest of this sermon is the part of the message where everybody within earshot of my voice that is a, a blood-bought believer in Christ, this is the spot that ought to pull worship out of our hearts where we are reminded what we've been saved from and we get a little rowdy. Because listen, what the Bible teaches is that God has done something about this reality, which brings me to my final point. Guys, God does not want you or anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, it's in Isaiah 65, where God says to an unbelieving part of Israel, he says, all day long, all day long, God says, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, I think what a lot of people do when they read that passage is they picture God like this. They picture God going, all day long, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And you think that God is angry with you, that God is disgusted with you, that God can't wait to just sort of cast you off. Because we know that's not what God is in God's heart. Do you know how we know? 
Because the Bible tells us what's in God's heart. Here's what's in God's heart. God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. We know that God so badly doesn't want anybody to go to hell that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to live the life that you could not live, die the death that you should have died to pay the penalty for your sins so that you never have to taste one drop, one second of hell ever. So guys, when you read that passage that says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people, guys, God isn't doing this. It's not this. God is doing this. He's saying, all day long, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Will you just come home? And then he sent his son Jesus to this earth to die on a cross, and God went all day long, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Guys, God does not want you to go to hell. In fact, every now and then, because I'm a pastor, I'll get on an airplane or I'll have a conversation with somebody, and somebody will say, man, I could never believe in a God that would send people to hell. And my response to that objection is always the exact same. I always say, you may be describing some God, but you are not describing my God. Not my God. My God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. In fact, my God did everything in his power to keep you from going to hell. My God didn't want you to go to hell so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross so that you wouldn't have to go to hell, so that if you go to hell, you gotta step over his dead body to get there. That's how much my God didn't want you to go to hell. You gotta work at it. If you're gonna go to hell, you gotta work at it to get there. So listen, the question that all of this leads us to is the actual question we'll ask if we understand the reality of God's holiness and the reality of our sinfulness before him. We will ask the question not, how could God send anybody to hell? We'll ask the question, how could a just and holy God bring anyone to heaven? And God has resoundingly answered that question in the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, God says this. He says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call that the great exchange, that Jesus got what was ours and that we get what was Jesus when we place our faith in him. So let me explain this in two different ways. The Bible says, how could, you're asking, how could a just and holy God bring a sinful person into the place of perfection in heaven? Well, number one, he did it by him who knew no sin becoming sin for us at the cross. Now, my example of this is um, years ago, there was a, a story of two firefighters walking through Yellowstone National Park after a forest fire. And they happened upon a pretty gruesome and macabre sight. On the top of a stump in the middle of Yellowstone National Park in a burned area, they saw the remains of a charred bird sitting upright looking straight forward as if absolutely nothing had happened. And out of just pity and curiosity, one of the firefighters touched the bird with his instrument and it fell to the ground to reveal three living chicks that were underneath that bird's wings. What had happened is this mother bird had protected her babies from the fire, listen, by taking the fire in their place and remaining in the flames when she easily could have flown away, shielding them from it so that they would not be destroyed by it. Guys, when the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, it's talking about the cross and what Jesus did at the cross is for every person that would put their faith in Jesus. Jesus huddled on the top of that tree stump of the cross and he outstretched his wings over you and he says, take refuge under the shadow of my wings. 
At Jesus stretched out his arms and the hell, the hell of God's punishment for our sin fell on him and he stayed in the flames when he so easily, he so easily could have climbed down off that cross and he stayed there and took it so that you could be safe under the shadow of his wings. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the other side of that equation. Um, I love to tell the story of uh, the pleasant realization I had when Jan and I got married that I now had access to Jana's income. Uh, years ago when Jan and I got married, uh, we were getting ready to get married and I was a, my job when we got married is I was a full-time Christian camp counselor. That is not a get-rich-quick scheme. And so when I asked Janice's dad for his permission to marry Janice's blessing, you know, he's a good, wise dad. He just wanted to know I could take care of his daughter. And he just asked, hey, what's your annual salary going to be this year? And my response was $12,000, you know. I just don't understand why he had further questions. And, uh, and so when Jan and I got married, I had very little money, which is to say none at all. But Jana had a full-time job as a school teacher, so she had a full-time salary with benefits. Now, here's how this worked. On October 8th, 2005, at about 6.45 p.m. in Gulf Shores, Alabama, Janice stood on a beach, and I stood on a beach. And she said, I do, and I said, I do. And at that moment, I received, one, I received the most beautiful bride I ever could have imagined. Number two, I received the girl that would eventually become my best friend. And number three, I received the love of my life, but I received something else also. In that moment, I received a monthly paycheck. Because what happened from that moment on is her check every month got deposited into our joint account so I could make withdrawals on it whenever I wanted. And here was the best thing, I never even had to enter the classroom. She did all the work, I got all the benefits, all of it. And listen, when you receive Christ, watch this, all that is yours becomes his, your sin. And all that was his, his perfect righteousness, becomes yours. Hey, here's how this works. When I die and I stand before God and he asks me, why are you worthy to get into heaven? I will say, because I loved you so perfectly that I never lived for anything more than you. I will say, because I was so pure that I never had a single lustful thought in my entire life. I will say, I'm worthy to get into heaven because I had so much character that I resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness and I stood up to him to his face. I'm worthy to get into heaven because I was so full of love that when people were crucifying me, I prayed to you, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And I'm worthy to get in because I gave away every penny that I had to the poor. And if you ask me, Josh, when, you, when did you do any of those things? My answer is, I didn't do a single one of those things, but Jesus Christ did them for me. He did them for me. And now, for anyone who places their faith in Jesus, his righteousness has become yours. You have become the righteousness of God. And now every time that you sin, you get to draw down on that perfect righteousness so that you will be perfect as you enter into, into heaven. Now listen, right now, here's what I need. We're getting ready to do something really cool. And so what I need is here, Rockwall Campus, and at all of our locations, could you guys go ahead and stand? Would you stand right now? and we're getting ready to celebrate baptism with a whole bunch of people that will never taste one second of God's judgment in hell. Not one second, they're not gonna get any of it. Nothing, they're not getting anything. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And so listen, 
We need to do a few things. One, for the people being baptized at all of our locations, you go ahead and move to your designated place in the service. Um, Lake Point family, here's what I need from you guys like in the rooms. If ever there were going to be a week that pulled worship out of your heart, what needs to happen right now is we need to worship like people who have been reminded of what we've been saved from. And so man, we need to fill this room with shouts of joy and worship like people who get the reality of what Christ has saved us from. So let's worship our hearts out in this moment. Now number two, what I need is these people at all of our locations, we've got baptism tanks actually in the rooms, not doing video feeds, baptism tanks in the rooms. Here's why we did that. Because we want these people, when they come up out of the water, we want the first thing they hear to be the shouts of celebration of their church family. Will you guys help me do that? Can you help me do that? First thing they hear, as they come out of the water, shouts of celebration, we'll do that, that's right. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church slash digital.